All right. Well, good morning. Um, Before I jump in, I think a few preliminary remarks are in order. Um, I first need to express a word of gratitude. I'm so grateful for this church. This church has been a greenhouse for my spiritual growth and for my training in ministry. This church has invested into me in numerous ways through many of you individually and in groups. I've sat in your homes. I've seen your ministry on display. I've gotten to interview some of you for an internship. I've got to participate in your growth groups, share fellowship with you, and sat under your teaching. I've been affirmed in various ways for my pursuit of ministry, and for that I am grateful to see God's clear work through you in shaping me. And I'm especially grateful for your prayers. They have no doubt sustained me and strengthened me even for the days of ministry ahead, even for the days of preparing for this sermon this week. I'm truly grateful. Secondly, before we dive into this sermon, I just want to note that if you ever desire to be maximally convicted and maximally encouraged at the same time, you should pursue a study of prayer for the opportunity to preach on it. It is not something in, it is not an aspect of my life that I would claim mastery of. I do not know many that do such a thing. Very few claim to be masters of such a task. Yet, it is maximally important, so today I come before you, not standing upon my own authority or my vast prayer experience, but upon the authority of the Word of God. I bring a message to you from the King, and I'm excited. I pray that you will look to Christ and follow his example as I seek to do the same. All right, so let's dive in together into this rich text. To get us started, I do kind of want to set the stage with a question. And it's a question I've even pondered with some friends here in this church. If God were to answer all of your prayers, every single one of them, what would your life look like? If God were to answer every single one of your prayers, what would the world look like? Would you look a whole lot more holy? Or would you be surrounded by the comforts of this world and have your holiness be unchanged? If God answers all of your prayers, would your family be safe and healthy, but the lost and homeless of Kansas City not know anything about Christ? If God answered all of your prayers, would the world really change? Would nations know Christ as king? Would churches be packed with new believers? Would missions no longer be necessary? And would Christ be returning to make all things new? Or would your food just be really blessed? (laughs) And look, I'm, I'm being serious here. I am convinced that we do not pray near enough. And the prayers that we do pray are not near big enough. We serve a big God, capable of doing big things, and if we are honest, our prayers can often reveal a very myopic view of the kingdom, of our own kingdom, our own hearts and minds. All we think to pray about is our own kingdom and not God's. We desire our lives to be comfortable, full of blessing and protection and ease, yet never pay but lip service to God's kingdom being advanced. We know prayer is good, But we fail to stay consistent in petitioning God to see his kingdom come and his will be done on earth as it is in heaven, as he instructed us to pray in the model prayer. If we are careful, prayer just becomes a passive box instead of an active and persistent pursuit. 
So this morning, we're going to yet again be joining in this study of prayer as we've been preaching through various passages on the topic of prayer to grow our prayer lives. And if you haven't turned there yet, I would encourage you to do that. Turn to Romans 1, verses 8 through 12. And as as we look at this passage, I think we're going to see several things that are, are very helpful for us in growing our own prayer lives. And I must say, I'm very aware that I could come after you today from the pulpit, making you feel really guilty of how little you pray. Prayer is one of those topics where you can really do some damage to the sheep because everyone has room for improvement. And while I do want us to feel the weight of this command to pray, I truly want to paint the picture of how rich a treasure prayer really is. I want to shepherd our hearts to Christ to see what a gift prayer really is to the saints. A desire to put some tools in your prayer tool belt so that you have more opportunity to build your own prayer life. And I pray that the Spirit of God would convict where necessary and encourage you to utilize these tools to advance the kingdom. So as we walk through this passage, we're we're going to see two categories of personal prayer that advance kingdom unified ministry. Two categories of personal prayer that advance kingdom unified ministry. And these categories of prayer are not likely new to you. They're not something that's going to be radically shifting your prayer life in any way. But I think we're going to see that as we unfold them and look at various facets of them, very intricate pieces, that they're beneficial to us. And I'll be honest, the the sermon structure is a bit deceiving. I I do have two points headed your way, but there are several sub-points below those points, so stay tuned for those. And those will provide various descriptors of these two major categories, how we should think about them. And I encourage you to write those down too, as I hope they will be those helpful tools in the tool belt of prayer that you have. I pray that they would encourage you to grow deeper in your prayer lives. And when the message is all said and done, I think that we will see that proper prayer is persistent prayer, and it should be a priority for God's people. So, as we look at these first of these two categories, um, let's, let's jump in and see what this text has for us. So, the first category of personal prayer that advances God's kingdom through unified ministry is expansive gratitude. Expansive gratitude. And I get that from verse 8. So as we jump into verse 8, we're skipping the first seven verses of the book, which is a bummer because we've just started the book, and this is the first chapter, so there's an introduction that is there that we have missed. And I think there's a little bit of unpacking to do there to get us into this point. This this is a, a letter written by Paul, likely on his third missionary journey, which is documented in Acts 18 through 21. And so at this point in his apostolic ministry, he has a lot of preaching reps under his belt. He's been preaching the gospel to the Gentiles faithfully. And he writes this letter to the churches in Rome. It's not one specific church, but it's the collective group of believers that exist in this city. So he's traveled a lot. He's proclaiming the gospel. He's likely waiting on some better weather to come his way so he can take a small boat across this sea to get to where he wants to be. And so in this waiting period, as he's eager to go do more ministry, he writes the book of Romans. Paul starts off these first seven verses with a bang and layering many different facets of the gospel that he preaches. 
He says he was set apart to preach this gospel in verse 1. And Romans is a rich book. We're probably aware of that. It, it is so saturated with theology and the gospel. There are many different facets and layers to this gospel. There are over 740 commentaries that have been written on the book of Romans alone throughout church history. That's a lot of words written on one book. Augustine, who's famous for writing the Confessions, noted that he started writing a commentary on Romans, got through the first seven verses, and was so frustrated with how much was there, the depth of it, and the complexity of it, that he stopped writing the commentary. That's why I'm starting in verse 8 today. (laughs) Not really, but the point is, it is complex, it is beautiful, and it is worth our time of study. Paul writes this letter likely for a few reasons. One appears to be that he's raising support for missions and his efforts in missions to Spain. And again, he's gospel-focused and excited to bring this on mission as he's waiting. But there also seems to be a heavy emphasis on unity. The church in Rome would have been made up of both Jewish and Gentile believers. And there is a lengthy discussion in Romans 14 through 15 verse 13 in regards to some divisions. And Paul wants to speak into this moment to this church where they are at to help them find reconciliation through the gospel. And reconciliation and unity most powerfully happen as a result of the power of the gospel. Paul's going to spend the majority of the letter walking through the gospel, the first 11 chapters. And it's only after this that he will start instructing the Romans and how they should live. This is all the backdrop of where we are now in verse 8, as we are in chapter 1. And we will see that Paul starts verse 8 by saying, first, which is fascinating to me because there never comes a second, as you would expect, Paul begins and is excited to dive into this, and it would seem to lead us to believe that there is more coming in this list of thoughts, but there isn't. It seems as though he wanted to communicate something, not just of the first of a list, but something of primary importance. I begin this first because I want to say it first to you. So he emphasizes it by saying first. He says, I say this to you. This is a tool not to string things together in a list, but to show us what Paul is putting emphasis on in the first place for us to see. And what we find is not a command, but a discussion on prayer that Paul has been praying for the believers in Rome. Paul begins this description of prayer by expressing gratitude. He thanks God. And this is not unusual for Paul. I would actually encourage you to look through all of his letters that we have in our copy of the Word of God and to see how he begins these introductions to many of these letters. If you go and read Ephesians 1.16, Philippians 1.3-4, Colossians 1.3, 1 Thessalonians 1.2, 2 Thessalonians 1.3, or Philemon 4, there's much overlap in his thankfulness for these people that he writes these letters to. There's this formulaic but intentional gratitude that he expresses at the beginning of many of his letters. It's actually notable that there are certain letters he doesn't include that in, like in Galatians, where he has a tone that is is rather sharp and pointed as they have abandoned the gospel. He doesn't begin with gratitude there. It is interesting, though, to compare these different expressions of thanksgiving, and I, I would encourage you to do that, to see why Paul includes them, to see what is similar, what is different. And now, 
as I have titled this point, Expansive Gratitude, I want us to see, firstly, that this is expansive in the sense that he's doing this for all of these churches. It's not just the the letter to the Romans, but he's praying with earnest gratitude for all believers that he has interacted with. This is not just a thing that Paul tacks onto letters. No, it's expansive prayer that is demonstrated in intentional effort by Paul for each of these churches that he has ministered to. And I want to show you through Paul's discussion here in Romans how we might be able to expand our own prayers of gratitude. It is easy to get in a rut of thanking God for the same things. And this is not bad. I would not tell you to stop thanking God for anything. That is not my goal here. That is certainly not the case that the small things are not important to God. No, God is very personal and cares about all of the details of our lives, even the smallest ones. But I think we would do well to grow in expanding our thanksgiving as well. For we also serve a God who is vast, who is beyond all things, who is Alpha and Omega, beginning and end, eternal, creator of every human heart and every soul, in control of nations and governments and sovereign over all of it. If we really believe that, that should impact the way we pray. So let's look at the first descriptor of those subpoints of expansive gratitude. If you remember, I said there would be numerous subpoints, so here we go. The first descriptor of expansive gratitude in prayer is relational. This expansive gratitude is relational. Expansive gratitude starts with relational prayer. This is prayer that flows from a personal relationship. And I see this show up in how Paul describes who he prays to. If you look really closely at verse eight, Paul says that I thank my God. And every single word of scripture is critical because God included it for us intentionally. So even the word my before God there is important for us to see. Certainly there's much to be said in regards to how worthy of gratitude God is. God is the source for all good and perfect gifts. God is the good shepherd who guides his people by still waters and restores their soul. God is good and does good to his people. Anything and everything that you possess is a direct result because of God. Your family, your marriage, your house, your food. God is the provider of it all and it all belongs to him. Nothing is truly yours. And that is why we are to be good stewards and we have been entrusted with these things for a purpose to advance the kingdom. But this is also why we should never cease to have a reason to be fueled in our gratitude, in our thanksgiving, because everything is from God. And possibly the most incredible word in this entire the word in this entire prayer is the word my. The holy God who judges the living and the dead, the God who made mountains, who instructs lightning bolts where they should go, who holds all things together, the God who numbers the clouds and the hairs on your head. This God is Paul's God. This God is our God. How often we forget that it is only an undeserved gift that any one of us gets to say God is ours. Paul has a relationship with this incredible God only because, and that is the only reason he is able to express thanks in the first place, because of this relationship. This relationship itself is fuel for worship and thanksgiving. And in some ways, it is like any other relationship. 
the strength of that relationship in part is defined by how things are being communicated with each other. The closer you are to someone, the more open you are with them, the more you tell them, the more you want them to know about your life, to be involved in all the things, the more you trust them with your thoughts and your dreams and your feelings, the more you trust them with your struggles and your trials and your laments. The closer we grow to God and the deeper we understand the gravity of having a genuine relationship with this God who is in control of it all should lead us to pray. That is fuel for our prayer. That is this gasoline that you can pour onto it. We would not be wise, would we not be wise to bring everything to God in prayer? Would we not be encouraged in the process of just by seeing how much God is doing? And as we understand more of his sovereignty, should we not be more grateful for everything? And what is the greatest fuel for thanksgiving in our lives? the gospel. And this brings me to the second descriptor of expansive gratitude. It is gospel enabled. Prayer is made possible through Christ. It is gospel enabled. Do you see that in verse eight as well? Paul says, I thank my God through Jesus Christ. This is the only letter of Paul's in scripture that includes these words in his Thanksgiving greeting. This is not a mistake. It is completely intentional. Remember the purpose of the letter. There's an emphasis on a unity that he wants to see coming. He's focused on the gospel and as the foundation for that unity and also the missional efforts that he has. The gospel is embedded within that to take the gospel to Spain. It is no mistake that Paul includes this little descriptor phrase explaining the means of his prayer. And what's wild about this for me is that very means of expressing gratitude is simultaneously great fuel for gratitude. The gospel of Jesus Christ has allowed for a restored relationship with God. Paul can say, my God, only through Jesus Christ. He can only thank God because Jesus Christ, a name meeting Yahweh saves, the anointed one, has come. This anointed one, Jesus Christ, he has saved his people. He has accomplished that work on the cross through his perfect life and sacrifice and then his resurrection from the dead. Apart from Christ, there is no salvation. There is no relationship with God. You would have to have a mediator between you and God because you are imperfect and God is perfect. And the only one who could ever satisfy that would have to be perfect. And that's why Christ came and took our place. God would have no relationship with you to hear your prayers apart from Christ. Through the perfect blood of Christ, if you are a believer, your sins have been cleansed. And the barrier between you and God is no longer there. The veil is torn. And more than this, Christ rose from the dead, defeating death, and is ascended to the right hand of the Father. Later in the letter, in Romans 8, 34, Paul will say, who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather who is raised and who is at the right hand of God who also intercedes for us. And Paul to Timothy urging him to pray begins with this very point and brings this up. He says to Timothy in 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 6, 
I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men. For kings and for all who are in authority so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and man, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all. It's fascinating how much overlaps in this section. You have him praying petitions and thanksgiving in here and instructing to do the same. You see that there is a mediator emphasized here between God and man in Jesus Christ. And it is all for the goal that the gospel would go forth and be advanced to see people come to know him. You see, we have a way to God through Christ when our sin has separated us from God. God certainly is not obligated to hear out or respond to the prayers of non-believers. But oh, does he always hear and answer the prayers of his saints in accordance with his will. And so with a direct line to the God of the universe through Christ, Paul prays. The gospel enables this prayer just as it enables all prayer. If Christ died that we might have a relationship with God, oh, how should we utilize prayer to strengthen that very relationship that he died for? What a privilege What a treasure it is to commune with God when we deserve his wrath. What a rich heavenly blessing we have in prayer. Like the song goes, what a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Paul's expansive gratitude expressed in this prayer for these saints is not just relational and gospel-enabled, it is also comprehensive. That's the third descriptor, comprehensive. Paul's prayer is extended on behalf of all the believers in Rome to unite them. As mentioned earlier, this letter is not addressed to just one person or to one church It is a group of believers, all the believers that are present in the city of Rome. Verse 8 says, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all. This this is y'all, right? This, as we would say. For all of you, for all y'all. Chapter 16, verses 3 through 16, will show some of these by name. And Paul is intentional including this at the end of his letter, saying, greet this person, greet so-and-so. And he he goes and lists this name, urging these recipients to greet numerous people, men, women, believers of all stripes. And what you need to hear is that's intentional because, again, he's seeking to unify them. This is unifying language. Paul wants to unite all believers, Jews and Gentiles, men and women, through the gospel. Again, the language is no mistake here. There's no mere words that are just for there in passing. Paul's intentional in showing that the gospel unites us through its power. And so his prayer embodies this as he thanks God through Christ for all of the believers. It's uniting. It's, it's all of them. And here's a sticky spot for some of us, I think, even in our own prayers. It is one thing to thank God for the people you like and the ones you get along with and the Christians that have similar interests to you that are in your close circles But it is a far different thing to thank God for all of them. 
for even the ones that you struggle to get along with, the ones that decided to school their children differently, the ones that even go to different churches. I mean, what if we actually took this to the level that Paul does? Are you thankful for all the believers in Lee Summit, in in Kansas City? Oh, but those guys at that church, I, I would never go to that church. Well, are you thankful that they're believers? That there's people united in the gospel? That the gospel is moving and working and hearts have been changed and there's a community of them here present in various places? Are you pursuing unity with them as Paul was urging his readers to do even though they had different convictions? That's what Romans 14 and 15, 13 and 14 will address. He, he looks at this division that's present. He sees that there are some that think they are right on a theological topic from two different sides. And Paul says, you need to get along. Even if you are wrong, or if you are right, you need to get along. Paul is speaking to these divisions, likely Jews who were abstaining from eating meat while others were eating everything. And if you remember, this, this has been something that's enabled. We can eat meat now. Praise the Lord for bacon, right? And, and Paul, in essence, is saying, one of you is right. But you who are right still need to get along with these who have different convictions on these issues that are not detrimental to the gospel that unites us. Hence the groundwork of the gospel in chapters 1 through 11 to show that you both are united in this through Christ. So what is the motivation here? Why is Paul expressing thanks for all of these people anyway? In verse 8 and then in flowing into chapter 1, we'll see that this is missions. Verse 8 says he is thankful for all these believers in Rome. Why? Because their faith was being proclaimed throughout the whole world. This is missions. The gospel was spreading in part because of what was exciting and enticing about it, that there were believers even in the capital city of Rome, in the Roman Empire. Christian churches, that news was spreading. That was a big deal. And clearly there's a degree of hyperbole here. It's not literally the whole world, but the hyperbole proves the point to be significant. It's emphatic. It's showing us that it was a great number, expansive, spreading outward. Many were learning of Christ far and wide because of the testimony of these believers, not because they had some exceptional faith, Not because it was something dramatic that was going on, some revival breaking loose, but because they had faith in such a challenging place. They had faith at all. And Paul is grateful for this. He wants to unite them through the gospel, even in his thanksgiving, because he's missionally minded. He's trying to go and spread the gospel further to to Spain. Do Do you remember that? That's the other purpose. So to snuff out the division and let the gospel flames burn in their testimony all the more strongly that that light would shine even greater and further out and extend the kingdom of God. That's why he's praying this here. That's why he's grateful. Paul returns to this idea in the closing of his letter in Romans sixteen nineteen. He says there, for the report of your obedience has reached to all. Therefore, I am rejoicing over you. This bookend of sorts encapsulates the letter. He's grateful for this. And man alive, I, I want to see God's name spread to the ends of the earth. Don't you? Don't you just get excited about the reality that we have sent a team into a place where, 
where the gospel may not exist, where there may not be one believer in a town that is double the size of Lee Summit? How are we praying for the gospel to advance? How are we thanking God for what he is doing through the missionaries, through the few that are there? How are we being grateful for how the gospel is spreading in our own city, into Kansas City? We should let Paul's comprehensive prayer for all believers inspire us to pray the same. There was a man who came and spoke at a church that I previously attended who was a missionary to India. And he, he was speaking of his testimony and just the trials he had endured, the, the attempts that were made on his own life, the threats that were there. He spoke of friends he knew that had been martyred even. And he urged us to just pray. That, that was what he came to ask us to do. He said, I just want you to pray for the efforts that are happening in India. He said that prayers are not useless in the kingdom of God, even when you're thousands of miles away. They are spiritual drone strikes in a spiritual war. So if you are a mom with tons of kids and no time and wondering what in the world can I do to advance the gospel in the ends of the earth to the nations, first of all, realize so much in your own home, you have children that you have been given and God has placed you intentionally in his kingdom where he has you on the front lines in this culture for your own family to advance the gospel in that trench of ministry. That is true. But also, you're not worthless in the kingdom advancement even in India, even in Russia, even in Ukraine. Wherever it may be, you can pray and God, the God of angel armies, has an ear to that prayer. He listens He moves. Spiritual drone attacks may be sent by your very prayers. This shows us again that proper prayer that is persistent and personal should be a priority for God's people. And so, as we have seen this first category of personal prayer that advances the kingdom through unified ministry, We have seen that expansive gratitude is relational, it is gospel-enabled, and it is comprehensive. But there is also a second thing, a, a second means of this, and that is persistent petition. This is the second category of personal prayer that advances kingdom unified ministry, persistent petition. This is petition meaning one who is praying with requests, one who is asking for something, supplication. Verses 9 through 10 will go on to describe these petitions, this, what he is asking for. And then verse 11 and following will describe why Paul makes those petitions. Even down into verse 15, he will be including what that reason is, why he is praying these petitions. And so verses 9 and 10 will look at that first. What is this petition? The very active petition assumes a need. It, it is a posture of humility that is just implied by the very fact that you are asking a request for help from God. H.B. Charles says on this type of point in a really helpful book that I would encourage you to read, it's, it's small, it's, it's rich. Some of the men on Wednesday nights this last school year were able to go through it. It's, it's titled, It Happens After Prayer. H.B. Charles says it like this. Think of it this way. The things you pray about are the things that you trust God to handle. The things you neglect to pray about are the things you trust God, that you trust you can handle on your own. Prayerlessness is a declaration of independence. 
That just smokes me. I mean, I have a relationship with the God of the universe and there are things that I think I can handle on my own. I mean, how is that working out in my life? How does that work out for us? Verse 9 will start off in this section of petition, linking it back to what has been stated in this prayer already with the word for. So this prayer of thanksgiving and petition have been connected. There is some link between them. And he uses God as a witness in this matter to show the validity, to show the depth of the significance. He he is willing to put God in the stand as a witness for what he is about to say, to vouch for him. But sandwiched in between God and is my witness in verse nine, there's a brief insertion, a, a parenthetical statement, so to speak. God, by whom the way I serve in my spirit in the preaching of the gospel of his son. Okay, there's a lot there and it's intentionally wedged in here. So let's break it apart and see what Paul is doing. See some of these descriptors of Paul's petition. So just like the first point, there were descriptors of the gratitude. We're in the sub points. We have those as well here. So Paul's persistent petition is wholehearted. I get that from 9a. There, there is an internal reality of wholeheartedness that exists here. Now, this is a sub-point that I need to do a little more to show my work for. Not that I'm not trying to do that for the other points. I, I hope you're holding me to that. But I, I think this one is a little less easy to see, a little more debated. Paul, Paul says that this God whom he cites is a witness, and that is the God who he serves This term for serve here could also mean worship, so a a worshipful service. And he says he does this service in my spirit. Now, what does that mean? Well, there are at least seven different perspectives that I read about in my study. But I think that Philippians 3.3 will really help rein us in and see something really helpful here for tuning us to what this meaning is. So so turn there with me, Philippians 3.3. And keep a finger on Romans 1, because we will be back. So Philippians, few books over. I think it's page 1176, if you're using one of those pew Bibles. So Philippians 3.3. Give you a second, I still hear those pages turning. I think this is helpful. It's going to use the very same language. Look for that language as he's praying in his spirit through this worship, this service that exists. So Philippians 3.3, it says this, For we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God. There's the same phrase, worship, serve, in the Spirit of God, and glory in Christ, and put no confidence in the flesh. Okay, so what Paul's doing here in Philippians is he's we can narrow down the meaning by how he's using this. In Philippians 3, there seems to be a contrast being made between this false circumcision and this true circumcision. Paul says that these believers, you're to be aware of them, these these false believers, these false circumcision. Paul says that um, there are three things that are not being done by these frauds that are being done by the true circumcision. So due to the work of the Spirit in them, there is a wholehearted worship or service that is present that lacks in these other people. They, they don't have that because they don't have the spirit of God working in them in an internal and significant way. So if we apply that idea to Romans here, when we go back to Romans 1, 
we see something rather significant as we unpack this. We see that Paul describes his effort to put forth a wholehearted effort into preaching the gospel. We know this doesn't just mean that Paul has the Holy Spirit because he says, my spirit, all right? So it's, it's not the spirit, but my spirit. So there's something personal or internal here that is going on. And yet, this is clearly something that is true of the teachers of the words that they possess. So yes, the spirit is working through them. God is moving. And that those that do not have God do not have this. So I suggest to you that he is saying in both of these places, because of the work of the spirit in these teachers' lives, there is distinct wholeheartedness present where their whole spirit, their whole internal being Everything that they are is in desire of this and acting in this worshipful service. So why is that important? Okay, why include that at all? This aside that's kind of wedged in, God is my witness with this whole thing about serving in my spirit. Why, why do we need to have that? It seems irrelevant to the matter, at first glance at least. Well, all this talk about prayer goes back to the gospel eventually. And that's what we'll see, especially Romans just uniting gospel language. Paul inserts this brief aside here in his description of prayer to reel us back to the main idea of his gospel unity that's there. So in the same way that Paul's thankfulness was enabled by the gospel, now we see that he inserts the gospel into this petition to keep it at the forefront of our minds. That brings us to the second subpoint which is gospel-driven. And I, I still see this in 9a. This prayer is motivated by the gospel. So Paul's wholehearted, worshipful service is in effort to advance the gospel. In the Greek here, it's interesting, there's no word for preaching in verse 9. That's why it's italicized in the NASB, if you have that, in one of the pew copies. It isn't that it's wrong. They're trying to give you the sense of what's going on there. How, how does he do this in the gospel? Well, in part by preaching, that's true. But again, the wholehearted gospel focus is now being brought to our attention in this prayer because his service and worship are rooted in the gospel. That's the sphere that this service and worship is happening. The gospel is about his son, it is denoting where the, this location of his service. It's in the gospel. That's where it's happening. It's rooted there. And it's wholehearted as he does that. So this is intentional. The gospel is the backdrop for it all. A wholehearted service to God is necessary for prayer. Yes, but also it serves the greater picture of the whole book by seeking to un- unite and unify believers. To make this really practical, let's jump back to that question from the introduction. If God were to answer all of your prayers, what would the world look like? This is a great test for us as we assess our prayers. And let's use this test to think through a wholehearted, gospel-driven mentality of prayer. If God were to answer all your prayers, would the nations come to know Christ? Would the gospel be advancing in the most lost places of the world? Would revival be happening among those who have never heard of the good news? I hope so. And I I want to be praying more prayers like that, don't you? That the gospel would be spreading. So thirdly, a a sub-point of persistent petition, we have the descriptor unceasing, unceasing. So this is 9b through 10a. 
Prayer is persistent. This is exactly where I get the word persistent for the main point. Persistent petition. And I think this is probably the most emphatic descriptor of this petition that is made because it's, it's in, explained to us in several different ways. It's a clear emphasis because there's several different words used to show us how often he prays. He says unceasing. He says always. He puts God on the stand to back him up that he is doing this unceasingly for them. And he says he always makes requests for them in verse 10. This is continual. And now we're familiar with this command and he matches that intensity that comes from 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18. That command that says, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and in everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. And it's, it's fascinating, again, intriguing to me that there's all this overlap. Again, persistency in prayer, rejoicing and giving thanks. That's what Paul's doing. He's practicing what he's preaching in Romans. He is thanking God for these believers and persistently doing that and persistently petitioning as well. It's really intriguing to me that those are paired, even as we see it in Romans 1. And this is also a sense of hyperbole because you literally cannot be praying to the extent where you never stop praying, right? You have to think about other things sometimes. You might talk to someone. Maybe you're good at multitasking. I don't know. But when you're sleeping, I have a struggle to believe that you are praying, all right? So there, there's hyperbole that's there. But again, it's, it's used to emphasize this all the more. The hyperbole is there for emphasis. We should be praying unceasingly. And Paul is showing this with great effort. The point of hyperbole is emphatic. Prayer here is consistent. It keeps happening. It's not something that Paul gives up on even when God seems to not be answering him. He's wanted to go to Rome to be with them and he's not been permitted to do so. Prayer is not just supposed to be something that we bookend our day with. There is something to be said about perpetually bringing up the same requests to God. I, I would really encourage you to take some time this afternoon to go and read Luke 18, 1 through 8. Luke 18, 1 through 8. That's the parable of the persistent widow. In essence, there's this widow who has this request of a judge and the judge is told to us to not know God or care about the things of God and she comes knocking on his door day and night asking for this request to be made and the judge gives this request because of her persistence. The widow keeps knocking. This is not to say that we can nag God into doing something. That's not the point. The point of the parable is that there are actually a quest, there's actually a question whether there will be anyone found faithful to be petitioning God regularly, coming to him often. Will there be people that have faith enough to keep going? Will he find any faithful to such a task when he returns? It is a privilege, as we mentioned before, to be able to bring things to God. And sometimes he uses delayed answers to grow our faith, to deepen our trust, to, to make that well go deeper for us to pull on when things get hard. Other times, he answers prayers in different ways than we expect, and that aligns our heart to God. It aligns us to his will, to see the ways that he is working and moving, that we would do the same. That we would conform our own lives, our own desires, to the very desires that God has. Which perfectly leads me to the next description of persistent petitions. They are submissive. I see that in 10b. 
Prayer submits to God's will. He says, if perhaps now, at last, by the will of God, I may succeed in coming to you. This phrase tells us that Paul has been prevented from coming, as was noted earlier, to visit these believers in Rome. But it also shows that Paul has submitted to the will of God, even though it is different than what he wanted. He wanted to go sooner. And still he says, if God wills this, then I will possibly now see you at last. Paul had a willingness to go where God points. He also had a willingness to go when God sent. Not just the what, but also when, the timing. Think of Jesus in the garden praying, let not my will be done, but yours. This is the example we are to follow. We are to follow the example of Christ and and see the example that Paul is setting here as well. And I want us to think through this. I think this is really important to kind of slow down and think through submission here from a few angles. First, this, this means humility. You cannot be prideful and fighting for your own way, arrogantly thinking it is best, and be submitting to God's will at the same time. It's not possible. No, you must be humble to follow God's will. And second, submission means that you are actually willing to go. And don't get me started on this, because this is probably the thing that... I was confronted with most in reading H.B. Charles' book on prayer. He says that the problem often is not that it is an untrue or insincere or doubt-filled prayer. The problem is that it is a prayer for divine intervention rather than a prayer for personal responsibility. You see, God wants to use his people to advance his kingdom. Yes, he can save souls on his own. Yes, he chooses people and adopts them to himself. Yes, We have no power to save souls personally in our own strength. But God uses his people to accomplish his purposes. That's the method he has employed us to do. If if you keep praying for God to save your family members, but you never share the gospel with them, then you're not being submissive. You're not submitting to the will of God fully in this matter. If you're praying for wisdom or humility but you are never seeking to learn from wisdom and humility in the midst of struggles that God puts in your life and you rebel against those trials that God has placed in your life to grow you, then you're likely not fully submitting to God's will. I'm convinced that nearly every trial in my life has probably been an answer to a prayer at some point. For humility, for humility, he humbles me. That's what happens. It's not just like poof, I get humbled all of a sudden. If I pray for wisdom, he gives me difficult decisions so that I can grow in learning how to apply his word. These things grow me if I let them, if I submit to the will of God. So if you're praying for God to move in the nations with the gospel to advance it, if you're praying for evangelism, like the luncheon we'll have later today, but you're not willing to go, to to give, to serve, that that would happen, to share the gospel, then there is room to grow in your submission still in your prayers. If you're not praying for, if you are praying for the orphans and the widows and the homeless and the other problems of this world, but you're not willing to go and serve with the backdrop of the gospel behind it wholeheartedly as Paul did, then I'm not sure you're really praying with a submissive heart. You're praying for divine intervention, which is good. It's a first step, but there is more to go. And look, God in his absolute kindness made prayer a duty of every believer. We have been chosen to pray. 
John 15, 16 tells us this point. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit. That's the part that we usually think about. Fruit that will last. And so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give to you. You've been chosen to ask, to petition to God. That's in part why you've been chosen as a believer. And as I said, this is a kindness because prayer is so good for us. It, it, it molds us. How is it true that that God could be so kind to make something a duty, a command for us, and something so helpful to us. We serve a good God. And this is true because prayer should shape your heart to look like God's heart. And so you will pray for the things that God wants you to and see as you begin to pursue those things, you'll look more like Christ. That's how he can say in there that whatever you ask in the name of the Father will be given to you. Your heart is being conformed to God's. It is true because prayer should shape us and you'll begin to pursue those things. So pray that you would be conformed to the image of Christ in that way, through your petitions even. All right, lastly, there is one final descriptor of persistent petition and it is productive, productive prayer, productive petitions. Prayer is done in the goal to advance the kingdom. Verses 11 and 12 uh, show us this, and it will go on even into verse 15. And really, there's a whole sermon that could be done on just 11 through 15 and how they are united. But we'll focus on prayer here. Why is he praying for thanksgiving? Why is he petitioning persistently? Again, we see the answer to that reason why in verses 11 and following. Paul longs to see the kingdom of God grow and be strengthened. Simply put in these passages, he longs to be with these people. He longs to be present. He, he gives two reasons for how this ministry will be enriched and why he wants to be with them because of that. The first is in verse 11 there, which is established and strengthened. Uh, Paul wants to impart some kind of spiritual gift in order to establish them. Spiritual gift here is not likely what you're thinking when your mind goes to 1 Corinthians and you're thinking speaking in tongues. That's not what I think is going on. This word gift is used more generally oftentimes to describe all kinds of things, even singleness. He is, he's talking here more generally, keeping it vague to suggest that when he gets there and sees how to best serve them, he plans to implement this gift to them, this spiritual gift, that it would strengthen them. No matter how you take the idea, though, that it seems to be the same concept that he's pushing for. He wants to see these believers established Established, again, it also means to strengthen. The idea is a firm foundation being placed beneath them. He will bring this idea back up in the conclusion again. We see this happening, Romans 1 and 16 being linked. Romans 16, chapter 25, he says this, Now, to him who is able to establish you, according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery, which has been kept in secret from long ages past, and he goes on, to him who is able to establish you. That's the same word. This is the establishing that is linked to, again, here in chapter 16, the gospel, just as it is in chapter one. The aside of prayer in verse nine that references the gospel and connects us back to this petitions and thanksgiving, the backdrop of all of it, thanksgiving through the gospel. He establishes this and wants to see it established in these believers. The second reason he wants to be with them 
and prays persistently that it would be so here for this strengthening is mutual encouragement. And that's in verse 12. And it first looks like Paul is talking about how it'd be personally encouraging to him. But then he includes together with you, each of us by one another's faith, both yours and mine. So verse 12 is not acting as a clarification to correct a wrong statement that's been made in verse 11, but to show a parallel idea. He longs to establish them and to be mutually encouraged. Note here again the inclusive nature of this. It's unifying. Paul seeks to use the gospel to unify Gentiles and Jews, all these believers, in the gospel. What we see by this is that Paul believes that each one's faith is valuable, both yours and mine, all of them. We see that every believer, everyone has a role in the kingdom. Everyone has a purpose in the church. They can encourage each other through their faith. So to stick these two parts together for this descriptor in verses 11 and 12, I get the word productive. Paul wants to be present with these people because he sees the value that that will bring to being with them. To see that they would be edified, established, and mutually encouraged. These things promote unity and growth through the gospel. And Paul recognized the power of personal ministry. He doesn't want you to, to settle for the letters that he's sending. There's something more that can happen by being present and seeing this established and strengthening happening. And again, there's a whole message that's sitting there for us to have for another day. Why discipleship is life on life and not just virtual. But for now, I will leave it as a note here, as a point for us to see. Paul doesn't just pray that God would show up here and bring about unity. No, he prays that he would go to bring about that unity. Again, submitting to God's will to see it happen showing he is underneath the king, God. So again, proper prayer is persistent and personal, and it should bring about a priority in us to pray for God's people. And when we pray properly, these two categories for personal prayer, expansive gratitude, persistent petition, they will lead us to advance kingdom unified ministry. As you've seen, the gospel is just the thread driving through this. In recent weeks, we have heard a series of sermons on prayer from the elders, from the staff. Sovereignly, even Dr. Granados last week was telling us to pray for wisdom. And we have heard about adoration as a posture of our prayers. We have heard about intercession from various different angles, looking at the content of some of Paul's prayers and others, and so on. In the midst of all this, in the midst of my own study for this sermon, I've asked myself some questions And I want to extend them to you. How is your prayer life actually being impacted by these sermons? Has anything changed? Do you have a deeper understanding of prayer? Our elders have honed in on this topic as leaders placed sovereignly in our lives as something that we need to hear. And what are we going to do with that? I hope that you'll look back through these messages, through your notes, and implement some of those tools from all of them to build your prayer belt up so that you'll grow deeper and stronger prayer lives. It's also just fascinating timing to me, the moment of where we are at in this church to have a series on prayer, when things are going really well, when numbers are rising, when we see God doing many things that are awesome among us. So often we wait to pray until things are going poorly. 
And we let our guard down to Satan's attacks that happen when we are on the rise. We need to be praying now. I think it's important that we see that in this moment in our church. I see the gravity of that. And I come before you in a unique spot pursuing ministry, but I'm not an elder of this church. I see the gravity of the calling though. I'm becoming more aware of it day in and day out, considering the responsibility that elders have to bear in counseling the church and seeing that their souls be shepherded and they will be judged for that before God and how they do in that task. The burden of ministry can be great. We should be praying for these men, even when things are going well, to protect them from Satan's attacks and keep leading us well. And as we look, even in this moment, to pay off the debt in not too long of time of this church, it's a pertinent moment to be prayerful for what God might have us do with that opportunity of those funds being opened up. We should be praying for wisdom, as Dr. Granados instructed us to do, petitioning God persistently, as we have heard today, of how best to advance his kingdom with those money and resources as they come and see that it would happen sooner, that God's kingdom would be advanced further. We should pray for our leaders as they plan for that future of this church. May God continue to develop the prayers of the saints at Summit Woods to advance his kingdom. And so, as I conclude... I'm going to do something that I have done with many of my sermons. I've summarized the sermon into a poem for you that we would think on and reflect on the whole of what this message was for us today. And so I'm going to read that. Oh, what a privilege it is to pray, to have a relationship with God each day and in every way be able to make a request known to the king. He hears our words and listens with care. Through Jesus Christ, all our burdens did he bear, a mediator, an intercessor, a means to access the possessor of all things and all time, not by ability of our own or a rope to climb, but the direct line to the direct line of Abraham's seed. A marvelous truth indeed expanding our thanks to the ends of the earth, a never-ending prayer of gratitude gives birth to worship. And as we praise this God, may we never neglect the mission. May our prayers and petitions be persistent as we have been commissioned to take the gospel to the lost, a wholehearted task because of the cross that saves even the chief of sinners and cleanses them pure. An antidote for sin, this is death's cure, a gospel-driven cause. May we align our will to the plans of the Lord for which his blood was spilled to advance the kingdom in submission to our holy king, not waiting for change, but eager to bring our prayers to the throne and see unity found among the saints of this world that God's glory would abound. Let's pray.